You can turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Genesis chapter 3. Today we're going to look at verses 22 through 24. Seems like a pretty appropriate place to be on Easter Sunday. Opening the Scriptures and reading about our first parents getting evicted from the Garden of Eden. Saints, there is good news here. We're about to see the stage set for the drama of redemption. I want to give you the context of our passage. Our first parents were enjoying an existence you and I have never known. Their lives up to this point would be totally foreign to us. Their experience, totally foreign to everything you and I know. The world around them was one of peace. They were living in a creation unscarred by sin. A creation where there were no storms that threatened to destroy your home. A creation where there were no wars, no violence, no death. They could not have told you the definition for sickness, sorrow, or pain. They knew nothing of tears. We had a man and a woman whose marriage is untouched by sin. Something that no married person in this room knows anything of. There's no selfishness, no hurt, no dishonesty. They held fast to one another and could be entirely vulnerable and not be ashamed. Man and woman living in perfect harmony. And not only did they have peace with one another, more importantly, they enjoyed peace with God. They did not doubt the Creator's love and care for them. They didn't think He was angry with them or disappointed with them or that He might be embarrassed to claim them as His own. They enjoyed the presence of God. They were with God. He didn't seem distant. Talking with Him wasn't difficult. It didn't feel as though there were any barriers or partitions up between them because there weren't. They were in perfect communion with their Heavenly Father. And they could have enjoyed this blessedness forever and their descendants after them could have enjoyed this blessedness forever. And by the way, you and I are a part of that. That's why you'll hear me refer to Adam and Eve as our first parents. Adam could have earned everlasting blessedness in this place for he and his wife and his children and everyone who would come after him. The only catch, you know it. There was one command. He must obey. 
We know that command. God told Adam, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden except this one tree. Break this command and death will enter the world. Keep this command and you will enjoy eternal life, peace, and blessedness. That was it. Well, we all know what eventually happened. The serpent comes, tempts our first parents to eat that one fruit, to distrust God, to doubt His goodness, to disobey Him. And they do. And from that point on, their world becomes much more familiar to us. It becomes much more familiar to what we are used to. Their experience becomes what you and I know all too well. Life in a fallen world. From that point on, men and women and their children after them are separated from God because of their sin. And the most graphic illustration is what we see in today's text. Where Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. They could not remain in God's presence. So they're thrown out. And the way to eternal life and blessedness was shut behind them. But we are here this morning because that way will not stay shut forever. The stage is being set for the drama of redemption. And at the right time, the right person would appear and earn eternal life and blessedness for a people. That's what we're going to look at this morning. So let's pray together and then read our passage in Genesis. Father God, would you direct our eyes this morning as we open your word. Direct our eyes to your son, our savior, the second Adam, the truer And better, Adam, who has opened the way for a people. Help us to trust in him, we ask in his name. Amen. Genesis 3, beginning in verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand, And take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way the tree of life. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. So after breaking this one command that would have 
secured eternal life, Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden. They're expelled. The Hebrew word we see in verse 24, garash, uh, is translated in my Bible as to drive out or to cast out. It's interesting to note that that same word is used in Leviticus. Only in Leviticus it's translated as divorced. I think that's helpful for us to see because God isn't simply setting them outside of the garden in the same way that, you know, at the end of the night our cat has snuck inside and so I picked the cat up and set the cat on the side porch and shut the door. That's not the picture. This is painful. This is a bitter tearing apart. The severing of relationship. The the severing of close, intimate communion. And it's heartbreaking. Sin always is. And we see once they're driven out, there's no sneaking back in. Verse 24 tells us that the eastern side of the garden, the Lord placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. There are cherubim guarding the way, these angelic beings. Cherubim, we see, pop up in Scripture as the angels who are in the presence of the Lord ministering. These aren't just kind of your messenger angels who are running back and forth with messages. These are those around the throne. In Ezekiel, we're given a picture, Ezekiel 10. We read, Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the temple when the man went in, and a cloud filled the inner court. Then the glory of the Lord rose from above the cherubim and moved to the threshold of the temple. The cloud filled the temple and the court was full of the radiance of the glory of the Lord. The sound of the wings of the cherubim could be heard as far away as the outer court, like the voice of God Almighty when He speaks. And then Ezekiel ends the account with this. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord. And the glory of the God of Israel was over them. That's the cherubim. John gives us a picture in Revelation. These are the living creatures around the throne of heaven. Day and night, they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. That's who the cherubim are. So the point being, these are beings that are always associated with the presence of the glory of God. And here are these cherubim driving Adam and Eve away. It's a picture of them being driven away from the glory of God, away from the presence of God. They are now barred from God. And that's what sin does. It separates us from his presence. 
You know, that isn't the only place we see the cherubim. There are images of them uh, elsewhere. If you remember back to when we were going through the second half of Exodus together, God gives instructions on how to build the tabernacle, this tent that travels with the people through the wilderness, so that the presence of God will dwell with his people as they moved. And God gave very specific details. And we remember that there's one room in the tabernacle, referred to as the Holy of Holies. It was the place where God's presence dwelt. It's where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. It's where the mercy seat was placed. And the high priest would go in to that room once a year and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat to atone for the sins of the people. All of this was done in the Holy of Holies. And this room was separated from the rest of the tabernacle by a curtain. You remember what was sewn onto that curtain? Images of cherubim. In Exodus 26 we read, And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy place. God placed these cherubim at the entrance of Eden. He also commanded that they be sewn into the veil that blocked the way into the most holy place. This veil by the way, was also hanging in the temple in Jerusalem in Jesus' day, still doing the same thing, keeping people away from the presence of God. So you had the cherubim, then you have a flaming sword, a divine weapon which we're told turned every which way so that there's no getting past it without being struck. In, in the Hebrew, this reads, uh, a sword of flame was whirling. What an image. Makes you think of the blades of a helicopter. A blade turning round and round in every which direction so that there is no possible way to make it past and get to the tree of life on your own. Trying to do so would be Perilous. This blade of fire turning every which way is a picture of the justice of God. And the promise was that it would fall on and slay any one of Adam's children who attempted to reach eternal life on their own. And tragically, people do this all the time. All the time. Adam's children think they can approach God and enter into eternal life and blessedness because they've done enough. Because they've earned it. 
They've done more good than bad. Their good outweighs their bad. Don't believe it. It's a dangerous thing to believe that it's possible for us to get eternal life on our own. This image of the flaming sword is what waits for imperfect men and women who think they can get to eternal life on their own. The truth of Scripture is that we will not know eternal life and blessedness and the presence of God through our own working and our own obedience. Getting there, escaping the sword of the justice of God will have to come some other way. There has to be another way. What we're left with then is what really saves us. I'm not going to bury the lead. Come right out and say it. Scripture makes it clear. The answer is faith. Faith, not works. Grace, not merit. We'll see this unfold throughout the rest of Scripture. Faith in the works of another. Grace in that eternal life is a gift given, not earned. The only way we will stand safe and secure on that day is by grace through faith. The important question is, through faith in whom? Well, the one whose name is above every name. The one who's currently seated on the throne and of whom the cherubim right now are circling and singing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Saints, it's the Lord Jesus, the risen Savior. And in understanding this, it's important to know something about him. You could simplify what the Bible is. You ever thought about that? What is the Bible? I've heard an acronym before used by a friend I love very dearly, but it's a terrible acronym. He says it means basic instructions before leaving earth. Terrible. That is not it. This is the story of God's plan of redemption. This is the story of how God saves his people. You could say the Bible is a story about two Adams. One who fails and brings death to his people and another who succeeds and brings his people life. Paul picks up on this idea of two Adams in Romans 5. He says that in the first Adam, sin came into the world and death through sin and death spread to all men because all sinned. One trespass led to condemnation for all men. By his disobedience, the many were made sinners. That's the first Adam. But in the second Adam, in Christ, 
the grace of God abounded for many. And now, not death, but righteousness reigns. Because of one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And he will lead them to eternal life. And his people will be declared righteous, not because they've earned it, but by faith in him. And they will receive freely peace with God. And they will obtain access and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, how is that possible? How is Romans 5 possible that we are given access to God and we can rejoice in the hope of His glory and we can have peace with Him and we can be made righteous and saved from wrath? How is that possible? Well, first, Jesus Christ succeeded where Adam failed. Remember, if Adam had kept God's law, he would have earned everlasting life and blessedness for himself and for all those who came after him. But he couldn't do it. He failed. But Jesus Christ didn't. Even though he was tempted. Think about these similarities. The first Adam was tempted in a garden with fruit, with food. The Lord Jesus is in the wilderness and he would fasted 40 days and he's hungry. And Satan comes to him and says, turn those stones into loaves of bread. And Jesus responded, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He succeeded. And not only there, we remember he was tempted himself in a garden. Not Eden, Gethsemane. Tempted to not go to the cross. He knew what was coming. He grieved over it. So much so he sweated blood. And yet he was obedient to the point of death on the cross. He succeeded where Adam failed. And then you remember what happened. At that moment of death, lots of things happened. One of them being that, that veil. The veil that had the cherubim sewn into it was ripped from top to bottom. That veil that cut people off from the presence of God was ripped wide open. From top to bottom. Meaning something, God did this. Not someone in the temple ripping up. God ripped down. All because of the cross. Where the first Adam failed, the second Adam succeeds and has earned access to eternal life and blessedness for himself and for all those who would cling to him by faith. Second thing I want you to see. The flaming sword The flaming sword struck Jesus Christ, not you, dear saint. Remember that sword that represents the holy justice and wrath of God. And remember, what happened on the cross 
Jesus Christ laid under that sword. And He took the fatal blow willingly as the substitute for His people. As we sang earlier, the wrath of God was satisfied. And just so you know, I'm not going down a wild tangent. There's a prophecy about this. Zechariah 13.7. Zechariah 13.7 says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. You know, Jesus quotes this prophecy the night of his betrayal and arrest. He quotes it in Matthew 26, verse 31. We're told when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. This is the importance of the cross. This is the power of the cross. That the Lord's sword fell on his shepherd in order to open the way back to the presence of God. He bore the wrath of that flaming sword for us. Jonathan Edwards speaks of this sword in some of his writings. He says, quote, Christ undertook to lead us to the tree of life, and he went before us. Christ himself was slain by that flaming sword. And this sword, having slain the Son of God, appearing in our name, who was a person of infinite worthiness, that sword did full execution in that. And when it had shed the blood of Christ, it had done all its work. And so after that was removed. And Christ, arising from the dead, being a divine person himself, went before us. And now the sword is removed, having done its execution, already having nothing more to do, having slain Christ. Listen to this. There is no sword now, and the way is open and clear to eternal life for all those who are in Christ. End quote. There is no sword now. The way is open for those trusting in him. If you've hidden your life in him, you will find no sword blocking your way to eternal life. Because that sword has already fallen on a person of infinite worthiness. And all its work is done. It's a weary Christian. There is no sword now for you. And Cousins says something similar in one of her hymns. The hymn is, O Christ, what burdens bowed thy head? She writes this. Jehovah bade his sword awake. 
O Christ, it woke against thee. Thy blood the flaming blade must slake. Thine heart its sheath must be. All for my sake, my peace to make. Now sleeps that sword for me. Now sleeps that sword for me. What might it look like for that truth to seep down into your heart? What might it look like for you to recognize your true identity? A sinner, yes, but a forgiven sinner? A sinner who can approach the throne of grace and now enter the holy places with confidence? Because of the blood of Christ. Dear saints, the way to eternal life and blessedness in the presence of God is no longer shut. Christ has opened it. And he leads us today as our our risen Savior. Not as some martyr who died for a righteous cause 2,000 years ago, but as one who is alive and is there preparing a place for you. Trust in Him. I'm going to read a few verses from Hebrews 10 that highlight how I'd like to end. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean, from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. But that's not all, saints. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's how I want to end this morning. That we can approach our Lord in confidence. No longer afraid, no longer anxious. We can have assurance that we are safe and secure We can have a blessed hope for the future, knowing that there is life, not death, beyond the grave. We can take our eyes off ourselves and cease our morbid introspection, hoping we've done enough, hoping we'll measure up, hoping our God isn't disappointed in us. And instead, we can love one another, care for one another, Encourage and strengthen one another. That is the Christian life, friends. 
trusting in our Savior and what he has done and then loving one another, stirring up one another to love and good works, meeting together, encouraging one another. All the while knowing that that final great day when we will see our risen Savior face to face is drawing near. Look to him, Christian. Look to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would we look to our Savior? Would he be our hope? Would he be our confidence? Would he be our life? Would we look to the cross and see the way opened? The way opened to eternal life and blessedness and peace with you because of what your Savior has done. Would you give us the grace to trust in him? To not be afraid. To no longer fear the sword of your righteous judgment because that sword already fell on our Savior. Father, would you help us all the more to look to him, to trust in him, and then with joy and gratitude and thankfulness lay down our lives for one another. Not just sit in our quiet rooms rejoicing over the joy we have. Would we be together with one another, bearing one another's burdens, just as our Lord and Savior did for us. Give us the grace, we ask in Jesus' name.